From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Schuck, religionforlife.com, exploring the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Today's guest is the author of 50 books on religion and philosophy. These books tell the story of his own evolution in matters of theology and philosophy. Don Cupid was the dean at Emmanuel College in Cambridge, UK, and he's the key figure of the Sea of Faith Network. His notoriety peaked in the 1980s, his most important book of that period being Taking Leave of God, written in 1980. It shut down his career and made him, in the eyes of the press, an atheist and perhaps, quote, the most radical theologian in the world. He survived partly because the then Archbishop of Canterbury and the then Master of Emmanuel defended his right to put forward his views. Since that time, he's devoted his energies to developing his ideas in a long line of books. He's with me via Skype from London to talk about his latest book, Creative Faith, Religion as a Way of Worldmaking. Welcome, Professor Cubitt, to Religion for Life. I'm glad to be with you. Well, let's just go ahead and and get started with this exciting book. Uh, You write on on page 45, uh, the main purpose of this book is to introduce, and if possible, to promote a long-overdue change in philosophical and religious thought. What is that change? It means, basically, shifting over from the old European way of starting with metaphysics and then going on to ethics, and putting it the other way around, starting with dissatisfaction with the existing reality and setting out to try to create a better world. You talk about how it went in two directions. There was a direction towards supernaturalism and then a direction toward the ethics of Jesus. Or, or yes, the... let me put it this way. In your hymn book, you've probably got a table somewhere near the beginning classifying subjects of hymns. The, they always begin with hymns of paying worship to God as creator. And in those hymns, the universe is pictured as like the state. Um, God is the universal absolute monarch. Everything's perfect. All things are bright and beautiful. Everything as it should be. Now here, existing reality is everything it should be absolutely perfect. But of course, if that's the, if you start there, why is there evil? Why is human life so wretched in so many cases? You have an impossible problem with the problem of evil if you start your theology in the traditional place. So I'm suggesting instead we should start with dissatisfaction with the existing reality, and longing for a better world. And how does that longing translate into a better world? Uh, for Jesus, it meant the coming of the kingdom of God on this earth when we decide for it and move into it and start to live its life. But it's on this earth. Remember that the New Testament is not about an afterlife in heaven after death, and the teaching of Jesus is not about redemption from sin. It's about a new model world on this earth. You know, you wrote uh, in your book in regards to Jesus that his early critics weren't wrong uh, to call him an atheist. Tell us a little (laughs) bit about uh, your your view of Jesus. Yes, that's because, of course, for ancient thought, God was above all king. The Jews called God king still do. And God was above all the giver of religious law, as in Islam to this day. But Jesus was very casual in his attitude to religious law, and he doesn't introduce any fresh teaching about God at all. Instead, all his emphasis is on the renewal of the human heart. We are to live not by an external code of law, but by a love that flows straight out of our own hearts. 
So a kind of immediate ethic of love for Jesus replaces the old ethic of divine commandments and religious law. And then, uh, of course, it wasn't long after his teachings that they turned him into a, a supernatural figure. Yes, that is right. Um, th that's because of uh, his terrible death and the difficulty of explaining how it could have happened. The very oldest layer in the New Testament of explanations of why Jesus could have died such a terrible death was that it was an example of innocent suffering nobly born. Mm -hmm. You couldn't say more than that. This man was a son of God, meant this man has borne his unjust suffering with resignation. It doesn't really say more than that. Only gradually did they evolve a supernatural theology to explain Jesus' death. But in the process, Jesus' teaching got forgotten. Instead, a whole cycle of supernatural doctrines about Jesus as uh, a heavenly being, the Son of God incarnate, who'd uh, died and was risen and ascended and sat at the right hand of God and so on. Um, all that was put in place in where there had been Jesus' teaching. And the church came into being as a kind of night watchman to cover the period before the kingdom came. The church awaited the return of Jesus to establish on earth the kingdom he promised. So the church officially wants to see itself replaced by the kingdom. But if you remember your Dostoevsky, when Jesus turns up in Rome, the Vatican turns him away. They don't want him because his arrival means the end of the power and glory of the church. The church's job is over. The church wants to, uh, to cling to its work and so continues to have uh, put this promise off into some infinite future. Well, yes, particularly in Roman Catholic theology, the church became so big, it became cosmic. The popes had power into the world after death. And people talked about the church expectant and the church triumphant. So that's to say, the church grew so much in its own theology of itself that it forgot that it was waiting for the kingdom. And in the creed, the teaching of Jesus totally disappears. He's born of the Virgin Mary, comma, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And that comma is all that remains of Jesus' own teaching in the uh, Christian creed. Hmm. So, Which is weird, you see, that his original message was not about himself. It was about the new moral world, the kingdom of love, that he wanted to see established on earth. A world in which there would be no bitterness or resentment or hatred. People would be completely open with each other. And it would be a world in which people wouldn't be interested in saving their own souls, but simply in spending themselves, as the sun does. You use the phrase solar living. Uh, yes. What do you mean by that? Um, to explain this, it's best if I point out a fundamental contradiction in the Sermon on the Mount, which anybody who's listening can easily work out for himself. There are two different Jesuses talking in the Sermon on the Mount. They're quite different. One of them says, act immediately, give yourself, shine like the sun, come out into the open, live by self-outing. The other Jesus says, be prudent and calculated, hide your religious actions, think all the time of the heavenly world above, you're acting with a view to that. The first Jesus is the solar Jesus, who lives the full life of the kingdom here and now. That's what the original Jesus was like. The second Jesus has become more Catholic. He sees this life as only a preliminary stage on the way to real life starting after death. And he represents the later Christian view 
that you can start following the teaching of Jesus only after your death. For now, you're living a prudent ethic of keeping your soul clean and scraping through this life without getting besmirched by it. Do you see, there's two different mm, Jesus in right. the Sermon on the Mount. Now, by solar living, I simply mean living by self and outing. The self is not to be saved, it is to be spent. We should be completely available, we should be completely committed to life. And sometimes that connection, I quote Tolstoy, Tolstoy says in Towards the End of War and Peace, life is God, and to love life is to love God. We should love our own transient self-outpouring, our own passing away. Uh, we should be completely committed to life. That's the original Jesus. And then that idea is also when you can see that in nature. You mentioned the cicadas or life itself uh, just pours itself out without regard of thinking it needs to continue yes. to go on. Life's, life's joy in itself, yes, yes. Uh, that idea that we could say, simply say yes to life while we have it, gradually emerges in modern times. Let me give another example of the changeover from the American experience. Mm -hmm. Take a hymn like Sweet Chariot, uh, as sung in the 19th century. There the singer is longing for release and redemption, and it sounds as if it's over Jordan in the next world after death. But perhaps there's also a reference to longing for emancipation from slavery in this world. Go on now to Martin Luther King when he talks about his dream. Is that otherworldly? No, in Martin Luther King's speech, it's become entirely thisworldly. The dream is of an ethically good society here on this earth, building the kingdom of God in America. Also, by the way, an old American theme for everyone in America. Um, so you can see there the gradual shift ever to an ethics-led, this-worldly version of Christianity as the age of the church comes to an end. Do you see what I'm after? Yeah, because, you, you know, you write in your book that church officials, theologians, bishops, clergy, uh, even the Pope, uh, new Pope Francis, have put the, the supernatural theological structure on the back burner. Uh, yes. they, they, they know the game is up, and yet they, they won't come out and say it. <laughs> and I wonder, That's right, yes. What's it yes, I think what's the it's... last pope who was fully orthodox was John Paul II, but he'd been brought up in the sheltered atmosphere of Poland, which preserved Catholic doctrine. But out in the West, since the 60s, there's been a rapid decline of the traditional Roman Catholic philosophy, Thomism, St. Thomas's philosophy, um, and considerable confusion as a result. Um, that's why Benedict, when he was pope, called for a fresh examination of the question of faith and reason, and why Francis goes entirely for ethics and simply doesn't discuss supernatural doctrine. And I think that's the reason he's uh, one of the most popular now, is that he, he talks about the things that we wish to see, ethics uh, behaving well. Yes, yes. For his own birthday, he got 400 sleeping bags stamped with the papal arms, and he sent the people in the Vatican out to give them free to the homeless sleeping under the bridges in the centre of Rome. Now, that's an example of a pope who simply imitates the ethics of Jesus. And, and of course, it's a very popular gesture. This is a bit of Christianity that even an unbelieving world can still understand and that, indeed, the whole world admires. Indeed, I argue in my recent books that the ethical teaching of Jesus has returned very strongly in recent decades 
especially in the popular use of the word humanitarian. This is the ethics of Jesus affecting us through the United Nations, through the medical profession, through welfare, through modern society's concern for the sick and uh, the poor and so on. Um, now, the triumph of humanitarian ethics is the beginning of the triumph of Jesus himself. Classical Christianity was rather cruel and had almost no social ethics at all. Modern Christianity consists almost entirely of social ethics, and it was set going by the Quakers. And yet we still have the baggage uh, of, of all of the supernatural history. And, and I'm wondering, and, and the clergy don't seem, or the bishops or the, the structure doesn't seem to want to just admit that. <laughs> and, 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 I know it's, this is partly because there's always a small core of fundamentalists who cling on to official doctrine as a kind of token of identity. There's a lot of talk of identity nowadays, isn't there? Yes. And uh, ultra-conservatism in doctrine in uh, Islam or in Judaism or in Christianity usually means um, you're very strongly opposed to the liberals. You want to use religion as a badge of identity. You want to emphasize the political solidarity of the believers. I think related to this, you talk about this need to let go of, of resentment, this ill feeling of resentment uh, towards life uh, and yeah. others. Negative um, feeling, yes. Yeah. Yes. And that yes, it's a word from Nietzsche. It's a French word that Nietzsche adopted to mean every kind of negative feeling of grudge or resentment or hatred or bitterness. To get war out of human affairs, you've got to get away from that kind of hostility towards the other, which is so deep in human nature. And I wonder if religion, the supernatural structure of it, was a way to handle that. Uh, here's what you, here, you've got all these ill feelings, so we'll give you the last judgment where everybody's going to get theirs and all that kind of thing, um, and, or, or how to deal with suffering. So how does one deal then with suffering or disappointment, injustice even, without resentment? Yes, that's interesting. Um, though notice that the old doctrine of hell, a supernatural mm -hmm. hell, was a way of venting your own ill feeling People used to say, I hope he rots in hell, to express right. their hatred of somebody else. Um, so the, uh, in uh, the idea that other people are wicked and they're going to be damned, uh, you see the triumph of Huesantimo uh, within Christianity. It's not become truly selfless. Um, think, for example, of a really good and dedicated aid worker or medical professional. Such a person doesn't think about their own feelings at all. It's completely given to the task in hand of serving the other person. Um, Nikos Kazantzakis, the Greek writer, says somewhere that there have been three great teachers of mankind, the Buddha, Jesus, and Nietzsche. All of mm. them wanted to live without ressentiment, without negative feeling. And, but they had slightly different recipes for doing it. The Buddha says, your passions must be calm. You must not be reactive. You must not flare up. You must not give way to road rage and so on. You must be, you must be able to manage your own anger. Um, Nietzsche says you should rise above any kind of uh, resentment or anger at other, what other people say. If, if you're an artist like Picasso, for example, you shouldn't take any notice of the people who ridicule your art. Picasso just gets on and does his thing, and you can't imagine him bothering to make any remark about the people who ridiculed his work all his life. 
Um, and Jesus, Jesus says the, the greatest victory is that of love, um, loving your enemy. Actually, if you want to know what's distinctive in Jesus' teaching, it is love your enemy, pray for those who despitefully use you, and so on. So all the great teachers want to live without resentment, but it's hard to do. I'm saying that solar living is the way to do it. The sun simply outs itself generously and gloriously. It's completely generous. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Don Cupid, uh, author of his 50th book, Creative Faith, Religion as a Way of World-Making. Now, what do you mean by religion as world-making? Well, I say religion is an ethical activity by which we project out our communal dream of a better world and try together to bring it into being. And incidentally, notice that we tend to judge religions nowadays by the kind of world they built up around themselves. For example, the Christian world is very different from the Muslim world. In the Christian world, there are signs of the humanism of Christianity. In the Muslim world, you see more of the transcendence of God and the submission of humans to God's will. In the Christian world, you'll see more voluntary philanthropic institutions like hospitals, schools, almshouses, all those sorts of things, even museums and libraries and art galleries in cities. Philanthropic institutions are much less common in great Muslim cities. So the a religion tends nowadays to be judged by the kind of world it produces. That's an indication that already people already think what I'm trying to say, that we need a more ethical understanding of religion for the future. And religion has always been a human product of, of world making. It's just yes. it seems that we just didn't know that or forgot it. <laughs> we, yes, we, that's we, right. And, and yes, the Jews tend to say that God eternally had the Torah in his mind in Hebrew. And um, Muslims tend to say that God's an Arabic speaker and that the whole Quran in Arabic uh, subsists eternally in the mind of God. That means that for the Muslim, Arabic is not a human language. And in a famous occasion back in the 50s when somebody published an academic in, in Cairo published a book on the history of the Arabic language. It caused scandal. Any suggestion that Arabic was a human language was theologically unorthodox. Arabic was the language of God himself. <laughs> That's yeah. rather interesting. Um, notice there that for the traditional fundamentalist kind of believer, religion doesn't really have a human history. They, people like to think of it as completely objective and unchanging. That's what I call realism. Yeah, but, uh, I realism. think our modern realization is that religion is human and has a human history. And of course, there's a great deal of resistance to that. But that's the whole notion of the idea of revelation or something coming from the outside is certainly yeah. pre-modern. Yeah, revealed truth. Yes, yes. It used to be believed that we came, we found ourselves in a ready-made world with everything working, all the laws of nature working and in order. And uh, the world already completely known by the mind of God. So all human beings had to do was to acquire knowledge was to be obedient to God. And then you participated in God's own knowledge of the world. Now, when modern thinking started about three, four hundred years ago, um, human beings began to think of themselves as the makers of knowledge. And the scientific method came into being 
as by far the most powerful method of creating knowledge that human beings have ever had. And of course, the modern world is completely dominated by science, which means that the old religious picture of the universe with God's feet uh, resting on the blue dome of the sky vertically above our heads, that was bound to collapse. We now see the world as uh, in scientific terms. That means we've got to do this painful business of translating our religious faith out of the old religion-based vision of the universe to the new science-based one. Well, now, sometimes it seems that uh, belief in God means wholeness or happiness. A person who no longer believes in God is someone to be pitied. They, they've lost faith. But you write that we should, quote, learn to see our beliefless,ness not as a state of being derelict and damned, but as a clean sheet and a challenge to be creative. Can you talk more about that? Yes, that's right. Um, in the book, I also make a an entirely new approach to the question of God, when I contrast God concentrated and focused as the pure holy, especially in the early books of the Bible, and God dispersed and scattered over the world as a kind of glory or brightness spread over everything. Now, I make contrast between things focused and things scattered, uh, things concentrated and things in dispersal. It's very widespread in the Bible. And it helps us to see how we might um, be able to work, as Jesus himself does, with a very dispersed image of God. In that case, we've not become atheists. It's simply that we've given up the old burning white holiness um, that Moses confronted. Um, that picture of God doesn't appear in the New Testament at all. There is no concentrated vision of God of that kind in the later books of the Bible, and none in the New Testament. Instead, the New Testament gives us only the human figure of Jesus. And by the way, the last great work of medieval art pictures God simply as the human being, Jesus. So the Bible and the whole Christian tradition are always already evolving towards humanism in Jesus. Only people won't notice it. Yeah, you talk about God no longer an alpha, but an omega instead, uh, that, that, that sense that uh, the God is, is connected to our human aspirations. That's right, yes. God is a spiritual ideal. Yes. yes. When we say that God is our alpha and our omega, well, the alpha is the first cause, the beginning uh, in the pre-scientific vision of the world. But nowadays we have our ideas of the Big Bang and so on. We've handed that over to science. But we can keep the idea of God as an idea of pure spiritual freedom and an idea of glory. For me, religious experience has always been associated with the sense of sight, and in particular with sunshine, butterflies and things, and flowers and whatnot. But my mysticism is visual and always has been, and so is that of Jesus, rather surprisingly. Think of Solomon in all his glory, not arrayed like these flowers. Um, so um, I keep uh, an idea of God as a kind of dispersed glory in which we can, as it were, swim uh, in the transit world, something that's fabulous and beautiful and consoling, hmm. uh, and God as a spiritual ideal to be guided by. The God's eye view is the objective view. Uh, God is a kind of imaginary standpoint of eternity from which we can see ourselves, learn to see ourselves, 
and judge ourselves. Um, do you see what I mean? I'm saying that the idea of God still has uses in uh -huh. our religious lives after we've given up the old first cause and creator idea of God. As a matter of fact, I think we are the only creators of the world because it is our own culture, our own thinking, that shapes our vision of the world as we look at it. Let me tell you a little story about the, the, the painter Henri Matisse. One day somebody asked him, did he believe in God? Matisse replied, yes, when I'm working. That's to say, happily to be absorbed in creative work is, is the kind of religious experience. It's one of the best things we can do. You write uh, near the end of the book, and I just about have time for about one more question, that we have, what, what we have left is, is the figure of Jesus and a, quote, still vigorous tradition of humanitarian ethics that derives ultimately from his teaching. So my question is, is that enough for a church? Is there any future or possibility for uh, an evolution of the church, or is, is the philosophy of creative faith a more individualistic philosophy? According to the New Testament, after the church comes the kingdom of God, and the, the radicals at the time of the Reformation uh, did, some of them, attempt to go beyond the church to a society of friends or a kingdom form of Christianity that would no longer mediate between this world and the next, but would be ethical and thisworldly. So that of existing Christian denominations, the Quakers, particularly the English Quakers, are the closest to my views. In my view, there will still be religious societies, and incidentally, the Sea of Faith, which still exists as a worldwide organization, um, well, those examples of a free religious society. Notice that the Quakers have virtually no disciplinary apparatus, and Sea of Faith, of course, has none. Sea of Faith is simply a free society of people in which you can air any opinion. Nobody has special authority. And I always say when I'm at a Sea of Faith meeting, um, I'm not the boss. This is not a fan club. Uh -huh. Don't follow me. Follow yourself. Find out what you think and say that. Do you know what I mean? Uh -huh. I, I want a church in which people can find themselves and express themselves. Not a church which is a bunch of sheep all grazing uh, and watched over by a shepherd. Creative Faith is your 50th book. Uh, are you still writing? I'm still writing a bit. A new book is going through the press at the moment, through Pelbridge. Oh, good. It's mainly about climate change. It's giving us the opportunity to renew our civilization if the existing cultural and economic order is getting close to collapse and may not last more than another hundred years because of climate change. We can start thinking how we can rebuild a better world. The imaginative writers like Cormac McCarthy, who've tried to imagine a post-crisis world, have always imagined just dev complete devastation. There's no thought about rebuilding as yet being done at all. So I'm trying to start that off. Yeah, I remember Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I remember reading that one. Uh, yeah, yes. that was pretty dark, all right. Um, Very well done, but there's yes. apparently nobody survives thinking what kind of basic human community could we still hope to keep going, and how can we rebuild society so that human beings in the future aren't so power crazy and so full of conflict with each other and so keen on technologies that exploit nature. In a sense, Christianity is going back into its own origins and beginning the task of reconstruction of the world. 
Don Cupid has been my guest on Religion for Life. You can find more information about his work at his website, doncupid.com. Uh, and his latest book is Creative Faith, Religion as a Way of World Making. Uh, thank you, Professor Cupid, for your time today and for all of your work. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck. You can find links to podcasts, including this show, at religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, download podcasts on iTunes. Religion for Life is a free program available to radio stations. Religion for Life is produced by KBOO Portland. Be well. Thank you.